I'm Dan Kurtzphalen, and this is the Foreign Affairs Interview. The arrival of multipolarity essentially means the diminution of U.S. power, the diminution of American primacy, and the erasure of American hegemony. And India is pushing in the direction of trying to create that world. Building closer ties with India has become a top priority for U.S. foreign policy. But is Washington making the wrong assumptions about India? Will the two countries' interests come into conflict even when it comes to China? Ashley Tellis has been one of the closest observers and shapers of the U.S.-India relationship. He served in senior positions in the U.S. Embassy in New Delhi and on the National Security Council under George W. Bush. When we spoke earlier this month, Tellus warned that Washington needs to be more clear-eyed about Indian interests, understanding that they do not always align with those of the United States. Ashley, thanks for doing this and for your recent essay on the United States and India, which we published in Foreign Affairs in the spring. Absolutely a pleasure, Dan. Pleasure to be with you again. So your most recent piece for foreign affairs is one that has in the past couple of months had a huge influence on broader debate, argues that U.S. policymakers may be expecting too much out of America's relationship with India. The grand proclamations that accompanied Prime Minister Modi's visit to Washington in June were an especially clear manifestation of those expectations. We've got another round of it with India's hosting of the G20 in September. But I want to start by going back in time, actually, since you were very much present at the creation of the contemporary relationship between the two countries when you served as a senior official in the U.S. Embassy in New Delhi in the early 2000s. When you arrived at the embassy more than 20 years ago, where was the U.S.-India relationship at that point? What did you see as the potential and and how would you describe the strategy, the kind of key steps for realizing it? So Dan, when I got to the embassy, which was sometime around July or August of 2001, the relationship was struggling to come out of the trough that was created by India's nuclear tests in 98 and the imposition of sanctions by the Clinton administration before President Bush got elected. Now, when I got to the embassy, those sanctions were still in place and there were over a hundred Indian strategic entities that were on our entity list. So they were penalized for being part of the Indian nuclear weapons program. And one of the things that we were attempting to do at that point was try to set the relationship on a new course. And much of this, of course, was driven by uh, Bob Blackwell and the embassy in Delhi because the administration was completely consumed by the aftermath of the September uh, 11 attacks. And so the focus that we had initially had on India got diverted. And so it really fell to the embassy and Bob in particular, and I was really privileged to be part of that endeavor. Bob was the ambassador at the time. Bob was the ambassador at that time. And Bob was attempting to still pursue the transformation of the relationship, which he believed was President Bush's original intention prior to 9-11. But now in the very unfortunate circumstances where the United States began to look at Pakistan as its principal partner rather than India. And so the challenge that we had at that point was how do you keep the leadership's focus on India at a time when Pakistan had become so critical 
And in that, in that effort, I must say we were helped substantially by the then Vajpayee government. Prime Minister Atal Bihari Vajpayee was India's prime minister at the time. You remember, he was the individual who first declared that the United States and India are natural allies. And he came from a very different tradition from that of the Indian National Congress, which ruled India for many decades. He didn't have very much of the non-alignment blood in him. And so he was really open to a new partnership with the United States and wanted to make it work. But 9-11 was equally frustrating for him because the kind of investments that he had made in the relationship with India now threatened to come apart because of the new U.S. attention on Pakistan. And, you know, we all know the history of India-Pakistan relations, the bitterness, the wars, and the fact that the Indians always get nervous when the U.S. sort of jumps into bed with Pakistan. They have bad memories of that happening over many, many decades. And after 9-11, in some sense, their worst nightmares came true. Because even though President Clinton first and President Bush subsequently wanted to build this relationship with India, circumstances now pushed the Bush administration into an embrace of Pakistan. So there was a hope that we could change course, but it also proved to be extremely challenging because of the circumstances after 9-11. So when you talk about the strategic significance of India to the United States now, when others do, it's almost always in the context of China and China's rise and U.S. competition with China. 20 years ago, our China policy, U.S.-China policy, was in a very different place. Uh, How much as you were trying to put together this new relationship at that point, was China part of the discussions? And what was the Indian view of China at that point? So China was Banquo's ghost. Even in 2001, and I remember the early conversations with Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld and Deputy Secretary Paul Wolfowitz, the concerns about China were very much in our consciousness. Now, President Bush had a much more eclectic approach. And like presidents do, they don't necessarily see our relations with one country in terms of the trade-offs, in terms of relationships with another. So I think President Bush had a much more Catholic approach, which is, I want this relationship with India because it is a remarkable democracy. Its diversity, its size, its complexity all impressed him. And so I think if you push President Bush in 2001, he would say, I want the relationship with India for its own sake. But as we all know, uh, administrations are many layered things. And even though the boss had a certain vision of why he wanted the relationship with India, many others in the administration, including at that time, uh, Condi Rice, who was his national security advisor, and certainly Don Rumsfeld, who was his secretary of defense, viewed the relationship with India as important both in itself, but also because it assisted our geopolitical objectives in Asia. And the vision at that time was, we want to build up Indian power, because if we succeed in doing that, we will have aided Asia shift towards multipolarity. And what does that actually mean? I mean, Asia shift towards multipolarity is a fancy way of saying, we want to surround China with many capable powers on its periphery. And that could, in the best of all worlds, dampen 
any propensity that China might have to be assertive. And so in the first and second Bush terms, our calculations were build up Indian power because it helps to preserve the balance of power in Asia. And to the degree that we can limit China's assertiveness, its propensity to exploit its power, that serves American interests. Now, remember, at this time, U.S.-China relations were still in a relatively good place. And therefore, we did not need to have anything more ambitious with respect to our relationship with India. And so I thought that strategy that we pursued in the eight years of the Bush administration was absolutely appropriate for the purpose. When you spoke to Indian policymakers about China, was the challenge from China, the the threat of China's rise present in their minds? Obviously, India has a complicated relation with China. There was an unresolved border dispute, but there's certainly less tension back then than there is now. To what extent were they willing to have that conversation with you? I think they were willing to have the conversation, and we actually had the conversation uh, privately on many an occasion. But I think there was a tacit understanding on both sides that we did not want to talk too openly about China. Because, as I said, our objectives were simply to balance China, not contain it. And the objective of balancing China was met as long as India sort of saw itself as a partner of the United States in this common purpose of making certain that China does not get too frisky, you know, as its capabilities grow. And I think in 2008, that's pretty much where we left things. China had a good relationship with India, at least a workmanlike relationship with India. It had a decent relationship with the United States. While we were continuing to, you know, build up Indian power, we were beginning to think of our own alliances in Asia in new ways. So I think the building blocks for a strategy of balancing China, I think, were were well in place by the time President Bush left office. You used a really nice phrase in a piece you wrote in Foreign Affairs a few years ago with Bob Blackwell. You called it strategic altruism, right? The idea that there's no specific thing we need India to do with us. We just need a kind of strong and active India for that balancing purpose. Absolutely. And I think that captured our calculations then. And so we were very cognizant of the fact that we don't want to ask too much of India, partly because we knew India's history well. Uh, We recognize India's own ambitions. Uh, And we didn't need India to do more than it was comfortable doing for purposes of balancing. Of course, now the world has changed and therefore, you know, things have become much more complicated. My sense is that the basic approach that you put in place during the Bush administration was was more or less sustained through the Obama years. Is that a fair characterization? I think so. I think so. Because President Obama, too, recognized, remember at that time, China was still not an adversary of the United States. And it was, I think, only in the last two years of the Obama second term that the U.S. began to consider the possibility that the China we wanted to see is not going to be the China we get. And it was only in those last two years that I began to sense a shift towards a more muscular approach to our relationship with China. And even that was completely modest compared to everything that has happened since. But I would say throughout the Obama years, we hewed pretty much to the essence of the Bush strategy. 
how was the Indian view of China changing through these years? We kind of know the the history of U.S. attitudes toward China and the growing acrimony and the the toughening of policy across now three administrations. Really, was India traveling a similar arc? I think the Indians were much more skeptical about the Chinese than we ever were. I mean, in the Bush years, we still had some optimism that the relationship with China would be maintained. I think that continued into the Obama years. The Indians never believed that that would end up where we thought it would. Because, you know, they are arch realists in that sense. I mean, we have the disadvantage of having both a liberal streak and a realist streak, which we are constantly negotiating within ourselves. But the Indians on this question were completely realist. And their assumption was that the Chinese are growing in power. It is only a matter of time before they begin to push their weight around. And I think they sensed that the hide and bite strategy that Deng Xiaoping popularized was really a tactical gambit rather than a strategic commitment. I think they had sensed that much before they did. Partly because they have a history of problems with China, partly because they live so close to China and see them in ways that sometimes we who live further away and are much more powerful tend to miss. Uh, But they were always very cautious in reminding us that we should not bet the farm on cooperation with China because that might come back to haunt us. And I think the history of the last 20 years has certainly proven them right in that count. So the other big change that comes in these years, along with the shift in views on China, is that Prime Minister Modi is is elected in India in 2014 and takes over a commanding place in Indian politics and remakes the country in lots of ways. There's been lots of focus on the domestic changes since he took power, but, you know, well-warranted focus in my view on, you know, the treatment of minorities and the state of liberal democracy. And we can, we can get to all that. But there's been less focus on how Indian foreign policy and Indian strategy has changed under Modi. How would you characterize the changes we've seen in, in, in that regards in the last nine years at this point? So the changes, I think, at one level have been more subtle in that they have brought to the surface inclinations that always existed in Indian foreign policy. So, for example, the deep Indian desire to protect its independence and its freedom of action. That's always been there in Indian foreign policy. But under Modi, I think it has become much more prominent. The second element, which again is very striking, is India always, as I argued earlier, is a realist state because of its history and because of the way it views the world. But it attempted to, in the past, anchor that realism in some conception of values. They may not have been Western values, but there was some connectivity to values. I think under Modi, India has become much more self-regarding and is willing to pursue its interests much more transparently and boldly. And I think those are two elements that are very striking in the way Modi has conducted foreign policy. Um, Of course, then you have to talk about the opening or the new geopolitical fissures, right? And the most important geopolitical fissure, of course, is the relationship with China, which uh, at least since the 1980s, India attempted to manage and maintain on some sort of an even course. 
And after the crisis on the border in 2020, of course, that Indian effort at maintaining some equilibrium in the relationship with China, of course, has completely disappeared. Just to make sure people remember what happened in 2020, that was kind of growing uh, Chinese aggression on the contested border, which led to several deaths for the first time in decades. Correct. So the, the loss of lives is obviously shocking. But the fact that China would act so pugnaciously, they had already got a foretaste of that because a few years earlier, there was a crisis uh, on this plateau called Doklam, which is a tiny corner of Bhutan, where Indian and Chinese forces came very close to a confrontation, which was averted by extraordinary diplomatic efforts on both sides. But then when it now degenerates into essentially a quite barbaric confrontation, which involves fists and crude weapons leading up to the loss of life, I think that really shocked the Indian leadership and the Indian people because it conveyed an assertiveness that China has not even displayed, you know, along its maritime frontiers. So this was a wake-up call. Your description of an India that is much more straightforward about pursuing its interests and unapologetic, I think has been hard to process for many observers in the United States when watching, you know, on the one hand, I think a willingness on Prime Minister Modi's part to be much closer to the United States and seem very comfortable with the state visit and all of the kind of, you know, grandiose rhetoric that accompanies it. And at the same time, to be fairly openly defiant of American requests when it comes to the war in Ukraine, for example. And it seems to me like that's a key observation for understanding Indian posture that otherwise looks confusing. When you look at Ukraine, especially, which I think has been uh, you know, striking and surprising to many observers in the United States, is that the explanation of it? I think that's exactly it. And I think in many ways, I've described Ukraine as a very uh, unsettling but useful wake-up call for the United States. Because the easy assumption was we've had so many successes in the bilateral relationship since 2001. India and the United States have grown closer today in ways that were simply impossible to conceive a few decades earlier. The partnership is so wide, it encompasses so many areas and so on and so forth. And the temptation is to infer that because this relationship has transformed, and I use that word, you know, advisedly, it has transformed, that India would simply become an ally of the United States, that it would be supporting us, it would be in our corner every time, and it would pretty much play the game by the American playbook. And what Ukraine did was that it reminded us that no matter how close we come together bilaterally, India will still pursue its interests, even if those interests end up dismaying U.S. leaders, or even if those interests uncomfortably intersect with some core strategic objectives of the United States. And we've seen, for example, since the Ukraine war, that a substantial element of Russia's capacity to resist the Western chokehold that we have imposed on Moscow is because India has provided Russia with the revenues that have come essentially from the oil trade and so on and so forth. So between the diplomacy at one end and the economics at the other, what the Ukraine episode has shown us is that India will continue to pursue its interests, even if the costs of that pursuit are sometimes unsettling from the perspective of American interests. 
And that is something I think we need to appreciate. I emphasize this uh, because the temptation to think of the world as simply divided between allies and non-allies is very strong in Washington. And because India is a friend and because our societal intersections with India are so wide, we tend to think that the Indian government and the Indian state will simply be compliant in, in joining the United States in the pursuit of its own interests. And I think that would be a serious misunderstanding. What about the values case that some critics of the Indian posture have made that, look, whatever your interests and relationship with Russia might be, this seems like an example of a clear violation of the kinds of values that democracies should together uphold. What is the reaction to that kind of argument in Delhi at this point? Well, I think the Indians have always been skeptical about the values case. I mean, we've tended to overlook Indian skepticism because as long as liberal democracy was alive and well in India, there was much that united us even when our interests diverged. And that was certainly the case during the Cold War, right? I mean, the United States and India had very different interests. But the fact that we had the strong solidarity in values served as a floor that prevented even our differences in interest from essentially melting down the relationship. I think with the advent of Prime Minister Modi, there is a superficial affinity at the level of values because we are still both democracies. Though I think India is increasingly moving away from what it means to be a liberal democracy and certainly away from a Western conception of what liberalism entails. And therefore, I think in years to come, it may prove to be taxing to claim that we have a strong solidarity on values. I think the Indians are very comfortable with the idea that the intersections of interest will suffice to create a partnership that serves both sides well enough. I think for the United States, though, that is a hard one to swallow because I always make the argument that Americans think of the world as liberals first and only real, as realists when they are condemned with no other alternatives, right? But for the Indians who have always had a much more realistic appreciation of international politics, or at least a realist appreciation of international politics, I think for them, the fact that we will have divergences on values, I don't think gives them too many sleepless nights. I think they are comfortable with that. They live with that. And what I find interesting is that in years gone by, when we had differences in values, both sides would sort of shuffle uncomfortably and try and find some elements of commonality because they wanted to salvage that solidarity in values to the degree possible. Today, I find it intriguing that BJP theorists, for example, are very comfortable in saying that we don't share your values. We have uniquely Indian values. And the measure of our relationship will increasingly be your ability to accept and respect the differences in the values that we have. And as long as we don't let those differences in values obstruct the kind of partnership we can create on the basis of interests, we'll both be fine. The Biden administration seems to have, after I think, a little bit of fretting early on in the war in Ukraine, 
over the Indian position basically decided to to let it go, right? That isn't a lot of public complaint, at least about Indian purchases of Russian oil. Uh, there wasn't really anything said about Modi's domestic policies and the erosion of liberal democracy in India when he visited Washington in June. Do you think that's the right posture? Well, I don't know if it's the right posture, but it certainly is an accurate reading of the posture. The Biden administration has made the decision that whatever India can bring to bear in the Indo-Pacific is far more valuable uh, to U.S. interests. And therefore, the discordance that we have over Europe and over the war in Ukraine is something that we simply have to swallow hard and live with. I think a similar judgment has been made about values. I think the administration, especially for a president who has talked about democracy and autocracy as being the defining issue of our age, I think the administration has recognized that whatever the direction India is going in, it's not a direction that can be corrected easily by American pressure from the outside. And so while we may still have conversations with India about issues pertaining to values, I don't think this administration wants to overinvest in getting India to change course. So in that sense, you know, they have behaved as realist as realists would imagine states to behave, right? They've made a judgment about what kind of change is possible. And they have judged that the costs of pursuing change that is beyond reach is so high that it's not worth spending resources on. And so I think the Indians too have recognized that. And so in some sense, they have a quite remarkable measure of immunity today because they know that the U.S. will not push on values because it can't change India's values. And the U.S. simply because of the issues relating to China will not want to alienate India to the point where cooperation with China is put at risk. And so if you're in Delhi, you know, you are in a pretty decent place. We'll be back after a short break. In a world where knowledge isn't just power, but a means to ensure safety, security, and prosperity, the need for skilled intelligence professionals has never been greater. At Georgetown University, our online Master's in Applied Intelligence offers concentrations in Homeland Security Intelligence, Cyber Intelligence, Law Enforcement Intelligence, and Competitive Business Intelligence. For more information or to apply, visit scs.georgetown.edu security. So let's get to the Indo-Pacific dimension of this, which was really the focus of the piece you wrote in Foreign Affairs in May, which was called America's Bad Bet on India. They should note the bad bet was our language in the title, not, not the phrase you used in the piece. But the argument of that piece was really meant to check what you see as overly grand hopes for U.S.-India collaboration on China. What prompted you to write that and what concerns you about the kinds of expectations that you get in the United States when it comes to India's role in our strategy in Asia? So I think there are two dimensions to this issue which we need to keep in mind. The first is that on matters pertaining to China, there is a genuine convergence between the United States and India because we both tend to see China as a serious strategic problem for our respective countries. 
Having said that, though, there are limits even to that convergence. And those limits derive specifically from the fact that India is a much weaker state than China is today, that India lives uncomfortably close to China, and that India has some commonalities with China when it comes to larger questions of global order. So the Indian rivalry with China, serious though it is, is still a qualified rivalry. And we should not make the mistake of thinking that India is in absolute conflict with China on every issue that their bilateral relationship engages. That is simply not the case. And what left me a little uncomfortable as I saw the tenor of the evolution of our relations was that as our discomfort with China increased, our expectations of what we wanted India to do in the context of that rivalry with China also increased. And it began to worry me because people began to talk about India as a partner, as if India was an ally. Now, we have difficulties in, even with our allies, right? And so to impose on India unreasonable expectations of what its contributions could be towards the advancement of U.S. strategic objectives vis-a-vis China, I thought was not a helpful evolution of the relationship because it sets you up essentially for frustration, especially in the context of an acute crisis. This is second reality, and that second reality is something that both sides, for their own reasons, don't want to reflect too deeply on publicly. And that is, India has a very different conception of what is the desirable global order in comparison to the United States. And again, under Modi, India has become far less shy about talking about its preferences with respect to that order. India openly today, in fact, as recently as last week in the context of BRICS expansion, India openly says that the desired global order that it seeks is one of multipolarity. Now, let's step back for a second and just take in the import of what that means. The arrival of multipolarity essentially means the diminution of US power, the diminution of American primacy, and the erasure of American hegemony. That's what multipolarity means. And India is pushing in the direction of trying to create that world. Now, obviously, it can't do it by itself, and it'll be a long time before multipolarity gets here. But I think it's important to keep in mind that that is India's objective. And it's a completely understandable objective from Delhi's perspective, because only a multipolar order creates sufficient space for India to take its place on the global scene as a great power. That is not necessarily, however, an American interest. And so we've got to understand that this is one big issue on which the United States and India do not see eye to eye. Now, thankfully, the Indians do not want to create that multipolarity through the use of war or through the use of violence. So in that sense, they are quite different from China which has no hesitation about, you know, sort of elbowing its way to the top. So we can work with India, even though we have this disagreement. But we have to recognize that this disagreement exists. 
One of the areas that you expressed the most caution and concern about in the piece was was the military relationship and defense cooperation. This has, over the last 20 years, been an area of incredible growth in U.S.-Indian ties, whether that's in military exercises or you know shared production of, of weapon systems. There's a whole list of areas in which you've seen incredible progress on defense cooperation. But but you see some divergence when it comes to expectations, even in this area. Talk about that divergence as well. So if you ask India about working together for humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, when you ask India about working together to surveil Chinese shipping movements in the Indian Ocean, the Indians want the operability that allows those kinds of objectives to be obtained. But when it comes to full interoperability, that provides for war fighting synergies, I think the Indians get very skittish. And India gets skittish because it has a very conscious political objective with respect to defense cooperation. India does not want to engage in defense cooperation in order to create the outcome of enhanced interoperability. India wants to engage in defense cooperation because it wants to become a great power in its own right. And so it sees the partnership of the U.S. in defense as being valuable to the degree that it enhances India's capacity for independent military action. Whereas we have a somewhat different view of why we cooperate with partners. We cooperate with partners on the expectation that one day we could be working with these partners to deal with some contingencies that involve the use of military force. And I think India in that sense has a different set of objectives. Beyond this, there is also the question of the political. Because India has an independent foreign policy, and even in the face of common challenges like China, India does not want to lash its foreign policy to essentially the American sale. We have to be prepared for the fact that in various crises involving China, India may not come out in places that we would like to see. In that sense, the Ukraine war is an interesting sort of example. I don't want to push that too far because unlike unlike the Ukraine crisis, India and the United States do share common objectives with respect to limiting Chinese assertiveness. But even having said that, India simply does not want to become a political handmaiden of Washington, even in the confrontation with China. And so whether you look at the narrow question of what is defense cooperation all about, which is interoperability for us, but not for India, or the broader question of what is the U.S.-India political relationship vis-a-vis China aimed towards, I think you will find important gaps that should not be overlooked. Now, this is not, of course, any reason to say that we should cease cooperating or we should cease to build the partnership. Obviously, there are independent reasons to build the partnership, even apart from China. But the point I wanted to make was that even on the most pressing challenge that faces both our countries in international politics today, which is managing the rise of Chinese power, there is still a significant gap between Indian interests and American interests. And reminding people of that is not a counsel of despair. It's just an invitation to be realistic 
about what the limits of our affiliation will be. The Quad, the grouping that includes India and the US, as well as Japan and Australia, seems like an interesting test case of this. From an American perspective, we talk about it as this major keystone of our strategy in Asia, but I, I'm inferring from what you're saying that India sees it as a much more limited grouping or a grouping with more limited aims than we do. Oh, quite clearly. In fact, during the Trump administration, the Trump administration went out of its way to pursue the securitization of the Quad because they thought the Quad would be a very useful mini-lateral defense mechanism to push back on China. I think the Australians and the Japanese were open to that evolution, but India was not. Because India did not want to signal to the Chinese that it was becoming part of a US-led cabal, which was aimed at constraining China and Asia. Now, the Indians would like to see China constrained by the United States. I mean, don't make any mistake about that. But they do not want to be, you know, showing skin with respect to this overt constrainment of China, and certainly not through a multilateral mechanism like the Quad. And so India has very successfully, I think, pushed the Quad in a different kind of evolution. It has now become a supplier of public goods. It has now become a socializing mechanism to sort of help the Asian states understand the China challenge. It has even become a development dispersal mechanism where it is talking of investing in everything from vaccines to infrastructure. But it is not a security partnership of the kind that the Trump administration had originally imagined. Are there other implications for U.S. policy of the the, the warning that you made in that piece? You know, if we are to properly understand the limitations of what India will do with the United States, how should we adjust our policy? I think that can't be answered in the abstract. It will be answered issue by issue, particularly when it comes to questions of what kinds of things we can give India. And we're already seeing the effects. I mean, people think this is a problem for tomorrow. It's not a problem for tomorrow. It's a problem that is already happening today. When we make decisions about technology transfer, when we make decisions about licensing, one very important consideration that already shapes our consciousness and our decisions is the fact that India is not an ally of the United States. And, you know, in some ways it actually confuses Indians because they see the rhetoric and they think that the rhetoric must now lead up to the opening of all doors with respect to technology, with respect to assistance, and so on and so forth. And they are sometimes surprised to discover that, you know, for all uh, the happy talk uh, about the importance of this relationship, we still end up with significant difficulties about the kinds of technologies we can give India. But that should not be surprising. So, I think the challenge is not about what we ought to do. I think the problem is that we are already constrained, except you wouldn't believe those constraints if you took your bearings from our rhetoric. Is there any good way to factor India's domestic situation into that process? Or to your point earlier, is that 
something that is best just left out of, of U.S. policy. I mean, that it's kind of striking that not that long ago, Prime Minister Modi was being denied a U.S. visa for his, you know, reported role in anti-Muslim violence in Gujarat when he was chief minister there. And then, you know, last June was being celebrated at the White House. Is that just kind of a reality that American policy has to live with? Or is there any way to factor that in? I think we have to speak what we believe flows out of our values. But I cannot persuade myself that a public forum is really the best means to conduct this conversation. I know there are many in the United States, especially human rights NGOs, who believe that we should really go public and you know make our disenchantment known. I sympathize with the motivations underlying, you know, those calls for greater clarity about our beliefs, but I don't think it's going to change anything. And so I think the administration has struck the right balance on this one, which is to privately communicate to India what our concerns are, but without putting them in a position where we either embarrass the prime minister or embarrass the country by having this conversation because I think that will not change anything on the questions relating to values. And it could actually subvert whatever cooperation we might get on the issues relating to interests. But Ashley, thank you so much for the fantastic contributions you've made to foreign affairs over the past uh, several years and for joining me today. Always a pleasure. Thank you for listening. You can find the articles that we discussed on today's show at foreignaffairs.com. The Foreign Affairs Interview is produced by Kate Brannon, Julia Fleming-Dresser, and Molly McEnany. Special thanks also to Grace Finlayson, Caitlin Joseph, Nora Revenaugh, Asher Ross, Gabrielle Sierra, and Marcus Zacharia. Our theme music was written and performed by Robin Hilton. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you heard, please take a minute to rate and review it. We release a new show every other Thursday. Thanks again for tuning in.